Yeah, I'm Mark Gibney uh, at the University of North Carolina, Asheville. I'm in the Department of Political Science. Okay, so tell us what the political terror scale is. You've been working on this for many, many years. But first, tell us what the political terror scale is that you work on. Yeah, so what the political terror scale attempts to do is to assign a number to each country in the world according to their level of human rights violations. So uh, to be clear here, we're not looking at all human rights. We're not looking at economic, social, and cultural rights. We're looking at what are called physical integrity rights, which is harm to the individual. And we're looking at essentially four things, the levels of torture, the levels of political imprisonment, the levels of disappearances, and the levels of summary executions. And so the data for this comes from three different sources. There's the annual U.S. State Department report that does every country in the world except for the United States. We also use the Amnesty International annual report, which does about 140 countries. And then the third source is the Human Rights Watch annual report. And so what we do is we have these coders who read the reports, and I've been coding these since 1984. The coders read the reports, and then we have a scale of one to five. And so five would be a country like Syria or Afghanistan. One would be New Zealand, Canada kind of thing, right? So we have the, the, the specification that says that as you go up the ladder here, human rights, human rights violations get worse. And then, and, and for some reason, it's the assignment of a number that seems to get people's attention. I mean, you can read these reports and it's, you know, the, you just sort of read them almost as a theoretical. But in a sense, so what we're saying is that all, let's say, all level three countries are kind of comparable, right? It, it may come in a different mix. It may be that some countries engage in widespread torture, but they don't have political imprisonment. There's no summary executions or disappearances. Other states like North Korea would have a large number of political prisoners. Actually, North Korea is not a three. It's, 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 in their, it's in our highest category. So that's what we do. We do that. And it's funny because when this thing gets started, terror doesn't have the same meaning it does today. I mean, we had even thought of maybe changing the name because we'd be, we, the word terror has now become associated with Al-Qaeda or organizations like that. The terror we're talking about is really the terror by a government. So we're looking at government terror against its own population, not terror done by non-state actors, not private terror, not domestic violence kind of terror. What we're looking at is the state itself through its agents treating its population in a certain fashion. So as I said, we've been doing this since, since uh, the early 1980s and we just released the results these are the results for 2020, you know, because they're, we're almost a year behind. The reports used to come out in the spring. Now they come out in the summer. So we have coders do this. If there's disagreements, differences, we then, you know, we just work that out and then we publish the results. Before we get to the results for the most current year, tell us, you say it goes back to the early 80s. Tell us how it's evolved a bit and how the offenses that you're looking at, um, you've already said the word terror has certainly evolved in its meaning over the past four decades, but how much are the other parts of this evolved, particularly the individual statistics and factors that you look at that make the scale up? 
Well, and so the depressing thing, Matt, is that things don't seem to change. You know, I mean, it's it's. Um, I think that's that that's one of the things that is so disappointing about the performance uh, in terms of the protection of human rights is that the single best predictor of what score a country gets in any particular year is the score they got the previous year. And you keep going back on that. So I, I, I think, I mean, there's certain countries, there's certain turnarounds. I mean, a, a country like Argentina under a military dictatorship goes from a very bad score and a very bad score would be a level four, level five in this five point, five, five point scale. Uh, and then it becomes a working democracy. The same with Paraguay. The, some of the countries in the Western and West Africa that for a number of years had civil wars, the Sierra Leone or Liberia. The, you can see improvement there. But when we do all the scores together, right, we take the entire world and just and just look at the the score from going back to 1976 to the present. Uh, it's a it's a flat line. I mean, it's a flat line. The State Department is a flat line. If there's one, also one difference, I think, is that in the 1980s, there used to be a bigger difference between the Amnesty International total scores and the State Department scores, seemingly reflecting the, I think, the political biases of the Reagan administration, because certain countries in, in Latin America were coded as being, well, not, not all that bad. Uh, but since then, the two go are almost mirror images of, the, of each other. The, the exception here is the Human Rights Watch report because they self-select which countries they do. And they tend to focus on the countries that are, uh, that are, that are the worst, all right? But, but I think the depressing thing here is how, how once a country begins to you know, that a country's human rights record remains relatively unchanged for the most part. I would say probably 90, 95 percent. If you're reading about Tajikistan and torture in year one, you're going to get torture in year two, torture in year three, and so on and so forth. Nothing seems to change here, which I think is a condemnation of, of the human rights, international human rights law, because the weakest aspect of it is the enforcement. And I think the lesson here is that most of international human rights law is not enforced. Thus, states are able to do things year after year after year. Well, that's a lot to digest. So let's take us now into 2020. What uh, what yeah. did your numbers find? Well, the same kind of depressing thing, I would say. I mean, the, the, the scores actually go worse. And I think the biggest surprise, and I'm just sort of eyeballing these things, and I would say if people are kind of uh, have a, a kind of a numbers orientation, but I think the biggest surprise was that countries that used to be level, a number of countries that were level one, and I'm looking at my list here, like Australia, Belgium, uh, France, um, Peru, Poland, Portugal. These are all countries that their human rights situation worsened. And, uh, and so one of the questions I've been asked is, is, was it the pandemic? And it doesn't seem to be the pandemic. I mean, the thought is, is that certain countries would have lockdowns, people would violate the lockdowns, and that would be the cause of this increased violence. It didn't seem to be that. It seemed to be, though, that there were more political demonstrations. 
And I do think that a lot of this was fueled by the George Floyd demonstrations, the Black Lives Matter demonstrations in the United States, had sort of this worldwide ripple effect. And anytime you have demonstrations, oftentimes you're going to then have a contact between security officials on the one hand and the demonstrators on the other. I mean, sometimes, you know, hopefully you have peaceful demonstrations, but in a number of instances, you don't. You have some kind of police beatings. So in some cases, you know, for example, Australia, I'm just, you know, depict the first country I'm looking at here. It goes from a level one to a level two country, which is still that human rights conditions are fairly good. Right. It's, it's just that the level one countries that there's almost no instances of human rights violations at all. And it's the, the France, the, the Belgium's. The Australia is that you now see more conflict between security officials and 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 and, uh, and and demonstrators for the most part. So I think that was one of the surprises that there's sort of this, I would say, almost this hardening of sorts. And I think you can see that certainly in the United States. I mean, when I give a talk on this project over in overseas, and I generally give these talks overseas, I'm always asked two questions. One is, you know, what score does the United States get? And the second question is, what's the worst country in the world? I, I'm, I'm always asked those two questions. Well, then I say, well, the United States, the State Department doesn't do the United States. That's the only country it doesn't do. But I said, if they were to do that, and Amnesty does the United States, and so does the Human Rights Watch, it generally goes between a two and a three. And the two and the three would be police violence, right? Tasers. Uh, deaths in police custody, George Floyd himself, that, that type of stuff. And I think what you're seeing here is that there's more of those kinds of incidents in countries that used to have these exemplary human rights records that you can see kind of this hardening of sorts in, in some of these states. Uh, and then on the other hand, you get the usual suspects, the usual suspects, uh, the other level of level five, you have, you know, to the second question, well, what, what's the worst country in the world? I said, well, we don't go higher than five, but we have, I think that we had something like 15 countries that scored at a level five, that what I call hell on earth. And it's the usual suspects. It's the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Sudan, South Sudan, Afghanistan, Syria, those kind of countries have these extraordinarily high and long-standing conflicts that there doesn't seem to be any end in sight. I want to come back to Sudan on that. There was just a coup there yesterday. Um, yeah. What can you say about the history of what's been in Sudan and the split that it had with, with South Sudan? I guess it's about a decade now. Um, how, yeah, how has that changed? It, it hasn't. The, the only change, I believe, is that you don't have the same uh, international visibility. If you read the report, this past year, and I think Sudan was one of the countries I coded, it kind of seems like it did in the early part of the century. In that Darfur region, you're still having massive levels of, of violence. It's just that George Clooney's not around to talk about, to talk about, no, think of it. He had that Don Cheadle, George Clooney uh, effort here. That's And you'll recall, Matt, that, that's, that Sudan was in the news uh, you also then had the removal of a dictator, al-Bashir, right? So it looked as if maybe they're on the way to 
to something resembling a democracy. And then you have the, the coup a couple days ago, but it's never been good. I mean, it, it re- I mean, I'm not saying never been good, but at least in the last 20 years, the human rights situation in 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 Sudan has has been pretty pretty horrible. It just doesn't seem to have captured. I mean, the world seems to get tired of this stuff. Even a country like Syria, you know, these things sort of fall out of favor or escape the public eye, or people just get this compassion fatigue. And 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 not to say that things get better there. And they didn't in either Syria or Sudan. Uh, and I'm not hopeful with the military coup that things will improve. And the and the split with South Sudan. I mean, South Sudan has been at a level five for the since its inception, right? It has never experienced a single year that that the human rights situation in that country was anything but atrocious. Okay, back to the United States. You said it's yeah. always been about a two or three. I mean, has it stayed that consistent through the entire time you've been doing the report? And Again, you you spoke a bit about it, but you know if the George Floyd protests were causing the worldwide ripple effects, or the if let me start that again, yeah. the w- rest of the world were seeing similar protests yeah. after George Floyd seen in the United States. So, what impact did that have on the United States rating for this year? And again, has it stayed the same uh, pretty much throughout the entire time you've done the report? I think it's gotten worse. I mean, I do. I think I think that the that the that the situation in the United States has gotten worse. Or again, a lot of this is, I mean, what we're reading, Matt, is what's in the report, right? And so if you have the report angled a certain way, you're going to get certain kinds of information. And and uh, so I think that I think the United States, again, this is just anecdotal because the human the State Department doesn't do the United States. You have to then rely on the Amnesty report, but it seems to me that it's been about the same. You have certain levels of of that, but but I think that raises a different issue here, if I might, because one of the things I do in my area of human rights is what I look at is not only a country's human rights performance domestically, because that's generally how we look at a state's human rights record. So when I'm asked about the United States, and I would say, well, the United States doesn't get coded. But I, the question I ask is, well, how do we look at the United States human rights record? If during the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, if we were to include, if we were to include Guantanamo Bay, Bagram Air Force Base, right, the, the U.S. activity in other parts of the world, the United States would be one of the worst human rights offenders in the world. But what we do generally is we we confine ourselves to the ter- territorial boundaries of that state. And I do think, again, the United States would be two and a three. This, there's, I mean, there's certain countries like Brazil, there's almost a thousand people who are killed by the police every year. The United States wouldn't have anywhere near those kind of numbers, but those numbers have increased. And I think the, the, the reason it would go be middle level two to three is a reflection of those kind of interactions with the police for the most part. What would you say to Americans? This is just my final question. What would you say to Americans who may not view police violence as political terror? Yeah, I, I think because I think of the association with terror being something completely different. But I think that that uh, I, I think police violence is a problem. I think I think it's a problem here. I think if I could bring this local here, 
I was appalled at the reaction to the George Floyd demonstrations in town. I did. I mean, I wasn't there, but I was watching it on live stream and perhaps I'm missing something with that. But I just thought that a lot of the violence I saw, to my mind, seemed completely unnecessary. Yeah, people aren't the curfews over. People aren't leaving. But I do think that there was there, there was too quick a, a judgment here. There was too quick to resort to to violence here. And so if people don't want to call it terror, I understand that. Terror has become had this meaning in common parlance here that we don't think of this as terror. But it really is terror because the state is engaged in certain levels of violence against you. And that is what the the that is what terrorism is, is when you're going to be suffering harm either from a non-state actor like Al-Qaeda or from the state itself. And actually, the state has a stronger responsibility not to harm. That's why the state exists, to protect people. And so the, the, the political violence here, the, ter- the political terror here, is the state is not, is not meeting its legal obligations to offer protection.